Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. This week in cricket, it's just myself and the great one and only Stuart Lipshaw. We're going to talk Aussie versus India, a New Zealand-Sri Lanka preview. And we'll also have a quick chat about the Women's Premier League, a.k.a. the Women's IPL, that's kicked off four games in. All coming up on the Top Order Podcast. Stay tuned. Well, listeners, just myself and Stu on this week in cricket this week. Baldy has succumbed to the dreaded flu and uh, Raj has got uh, a lot going on in the world of his day job, so um, can't partake in his hobby this week. So just me and you, Stu, still plenty of cricket going on around the world. A little bit disappointing that Baldy's not here to talk about an Australian test victory, particularly given what we were um, previewing in, uh, I guess, the lead up to the series, a 4-0 Clean sweep, I think, was the prediction around the table. But you've watched a pretty decent amount, I think, of that uh, series. And look, I guess you and I are going to have differing views on this game. Um, an absolute spin fest on a, a raging Bunsen burner from, from day one. Um, yeah, and I've not been shy, I think, about my comments on Indian pitches uh, in some of these test match series that we've been seeing. But Rohit Sharma's not bothered. Are you bothered? Well, I'm not bothered at all, and uh, you gave me, you gave uh, the, the the team a bit of uh, not enough credit there. I think remember Baldy said uh, came up with that calculation of however many tosses Australia wins, and th- that they might win a test. I think he got to three one in the end, and and three one was what I got to, and and I think I got mocked last week when uh, when I said that Australia might have a chance if they can combat the spinners. Not sure they quite combated the spinners especially well, but I suppose they did in that in that final innings. But, I mean, on, on the pitch, I, I guess we sort of have to start here, I, I suppose. It's, I don't really want to. It's You sort of go all these games in India, you end up talking about the pitch, which I feel is unfortunate because it sort of means that some of the, the good cricket that gets played sort of gets played down. But I'm, I'm quite interested to hear. I know, yeah, me as a spinner, loved certain parts of, of that game. But I guess... When we were, when you guys were talking on the Slack channel around that game, there was a lot of like, I don't want to watch this, or like, this is not the kind of cricket that I want to watch. Can you kind of explain that in a bit more detail and, and say, you know, what is it about it that's that's such a, a challenging watch, I guess, for you, or, or does it maybe doesn't feel like Test cricket in some ways? Well, I think that the key thing for me is, and there's a lot of cliches thrown around when it comes to what, when we're talking about what test cricket is to us, um, a balance between bat and ball, a genuine test, an ebb and a flow. And if I just kind of look at particularly this game, the third test in indoor, that literally was over, I think, um, by lunch pretty much on day three. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't any ebb or flow in there, there wasn't a balance between um, bat and ball. You only need to look at the, you know, really, really high-level scores. If this had been Perth and you'd have seen those scores on a bouncy, seeming pitch with massive cracks, you cannot imagine the social media coverage that that would have got from uh, the Indian fan base, particularly if they'd have been on the receiving end of that kind of score. Um scoreline in in a test match Mm. Uh, and I think in terms of probably the converse of that where we see a pitch that seems massively early in the game 
Um, and there's been plenty of examples of that. We, you know, we've seen them in Brisbane. We've seen them um, in South Africa. We've seen the odd one in England as well. But there always seems to be in those games. And even if we think back to the recent test match at the Basin Reserve, it was very much a new ball wicket um, mm. where we saw, you know, clumps of wickets fall with a new ball. But then it, you know, it, it flattened out when the sun had been on it, when the heavy roller had been on it, and when the ball got that little bit older. It, for me, it felt that all the way through this test match, there was not that balance between bat and ball. There wasn't a session where the batsman could really put together a meaningful partnership in, in that game. You, you know, you and I talked off air about um, Chiteshwar Pajara's um, innings that, you, you know, I think you used a superlative around how good it was. When you actually look at the stats, though, who would want to watch 59 off 142 balls? So, again, and you know, it didn't really have a partnership in, in the whole game, to be perfectly honest. So I just think that that balance between bat and ball has gone, you know, too far. You talk about the statistics around the spinners, with the exception of Matthew Kuhneman, who went for, you know, 3.7 in that second innings. All the other spinners have taken their uh, wickets at economy rates well under three. And if you look at the Indian spinners in the first innings, um, have taken seven wickets between them, well under two and a half runs and over. That, for me, isn't a, ba a balance between bat and ball. It isn't a game of test cricket I, I would want to watch. Um, I enjoyed watching one session of it as something a little <laughs> bit different to a diet of the ball seeming around a little bit. But I don't want to see that over two and a half days and it'd be an absolute lottery to bat on. I, I, I take your point about uh, the the balance between bat and ball because I think that, you know, I, I do, you know, I, th I think it's quite clear that the ball uh, dominated the bat and, and spinners, you know, had, had, you know, you could say an unfair advantage there. I do. I do think you're you're pretty spoiled these days with your your baseball. If you're saying that you don't want to watch a fifty nine ball, a fifty nine runs off a hundred and forty odd balls, a grinding test innings. It was the perf, you know, quality quality test innings. Wickets falling all around him. Yeah, I mean, I, I really think that's one of the better Pujar innings that I've seen. I mean, I, I haven't been spoiled enough to have to have watched. He's obviously had many many great innings for India throughout his career, but. You know, he just, he found it, I guess we've been talking this whole series about you've got to find a way to combat the spin. And, and he managed to do that. He was using his feet really well. He was very decisive in what he did. Yeah, and I just thought he did a, he did a wonderful job. It took an amazing catch from, from Steve Smith to dismiss him. And while he was in, you sort of thought, okay, if he can get up to 150 and, you know, if, if they can get a lead of 150, which kind of maybe suggests... <laughs> kind of the makes your point really that if we're thinking okay 150 is a defendable score then yes bat bat is not having a fair chance against ball and even I think uh what was it 86 or whatever that I had to chase and and Baldy was on the slack channel saying you know I'm really nervous about today I feel like you know we're that Australia could could lose but I think we do have to give some praise to certainly to Nathan Lyon I, I know that he's copped a a lot of a lot of stick in recent times about, you know, being the goat and all this kind of stuff. But he actually has delivered, I think, really well in this series. The way he sort of, I think early on in the series, they figured out that these pitches were going to turn, which was not going to be any surprise to anyone. But he figured out, they figured out a strategy and both him and Murphy have been coming around the wicket 
which I'm normally very much against, but they've been coming around the wicket and it's been bringing both edges in. And he bought, he just bowled really, really well. And, you know, some of the deliveries, I suppose from a spin point of view, I would have loved to have a bowl on that pitch because just the bounce that they were getting, I think was the, the key thing for me. It's, it's exciting when a spinner is bouncing and turning the ball. And yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm always going to enjoy those things a, a lot more, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think Rohit Sharma's basically come out and said things like, you know, when you're playing at home, you always play to your strengths and, and our strength is spin bowling and batting depth. And we've got to stop talking about this to his credit. Steve Smith's actually come out and said, I prefer this more than, more than a genuine flat wicket. So, you know, I, I think there's a place for, for cricket like this, but you're probably right in that no one getting over 200 is, isn't the greatest uh, advertisement for test cricket. Yeah. I, and look, again, I think the odd, um, the odd test match like this, you know, fair enough. But I, I think if you kind of look at that scorecard, honestly, and say, you know, would you want to watch this game um, or show the, you know, just the highlight scores from, for example, that Basin Reserve test match. And, you, you know, you've got uh, 400 plays, whatever it was, plays four, 70 plays, 200 and whatever it was that we, mm. that we just narrowly avoided to chase down. Then I know which one you would probably watch if you were kind of getting the one minute Netflix preview of, of what you were going to see in, in your feature. Um, and, and look, I think, you know, again, you're an off spinner. I'm not. Would, would you rather be, would you rather be able to beat both edges of the bat coming over the wicket and bring LB in or, you know, have to do that from round the wicket because the ball's spinning too much for you to even contemplate being able to pitch the ball on off stump and get an LB because it's just going to miss three sets down the leg side if you're bowling, you know, conventionally over the wicket. I, I don't know. Um, again, we'll have to agree to, to disagree on this, Lippy. I, I don't think it's a great advert for, uh, for, for test cricket, to be perfectly honest. But what do I know? Because it looks as if this, you know, fourth and final test match is potentially going to break the attendance record. They've got something like 80,000 odd tickets out of 130,000 wow. um, already sold for the first day. Um, and, and thinking about setting a record for a game of a game of test cricket. So, yeah, what do I know? Well, look, I, yeah, I, I sort of tend to agree that, you know, I think that would have been so much more fun if we could get four days of cricket like that. And, and the idea that it would be lovely if the pitch was like in the earlier tests, I think, actually, if you applied yourself, you could get in. And I think the problem for Australia in those early tests is that they didn't have a good way to combat that spin. And actually bringing, I think actually you've got to give a lot of credit to Australia for, uh, and, and I think India have got this slightly wrong in that they, they brought the pitch so far down to this level that it brought it Australia story. back into this match. Yeah, it, 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 it equalized the match. And it meant that, you know, you had to be incredible. You had to bat incredibly well, or you had to actually just be really lucky to survive long yeah. enough to get enough runs. And, the, you know, Australia were struggling on that final day, chasing 80-odd, and then Travis Head just went, oh, I've had enough of this, and just started smashing it and played really well and, and got, led Australia to, to the win. It kind of made, uh, it made his non-selection in the first test look very silly, but I guess we've already, already discussed that. But, yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating what we get out of this fourth test. It would, like I said, it would be lovely if, you know, we could have 
300, plays 300, and then it becomes, you know, really, really difficult to play. That's the kind of cricket that I, I really enjoy. But, yeah, we, we'll see what we get. Yeah. Uh, for me, it just feels like day three on day one, and um, I just don't think that. Uh, and the pitch is never going to get any better. Um, mm. I, I think, you know, the contrast, I think, to some of the seeming wickets that you see, the wicket tends to get better at some point, even if it starts off um, offering a bit to seam, whereas when it's, you know, this dry and, and turning so much on day one, it's never going to be a pitch that then um, offers any sort of flattening and, and, and balance between that, that bat, uh, bat and ball. Lippy, let's move on to New Zealand, Sri Lanka. So I think pretty much straight after the test match at the Basin, New Zealand named an unchanged 13-man squad for this series against Sri Lanka. Uh, a few questions probably around the balance of the side, and we talked a little bit about it in the aftermath of that England-New Zealand test match. What are you looking to uh, see, I think, from this series, from a New Zealand um, perspective, it's got to be a got to be a, a clean sweep for the Black Cup, surely. Well, I think it does. I, I'm I'm not I haven't really been as bullish in, in recent times about what we need to do in terms of results. I, I've sort of tended to uh, try to focus more on you know what we're actually doing and the signs going forward and, and sort of re-establishing ourselves. But I, I actually do think that. We have to win these two tests, you know, obviously weather aside and, and all of that kind of stuff. But I think we have to be the dominant team. I I know that the, you know, there's a huge amount of euphoria after that test uh, win at the Basin. But it, I think it, in some ways, when we talked about this last week, it, it papered over some cracks and it papered over the fact that we haven't been playing great test cricket. We haven't been winning the big moments. We've had, we've got some question marks about our bowling depth, certainly. We've got some question marks about the middle order. And I think we have to start, in fairness, we've played some, we've played England, you know, we went through this tough run and we played England four out of those five tests. And, you know, 12 months ago, that would not have been a, an excuse. But at the moment, England is playing some very good cricket and they, they, they got in our heads, they got the mental advantage and started to make us look silly. And actually bouncing back, I hope, is going to not rejuvenate this side, but I guess sort of give that belief back again that I think has been missing in the past few games. And, yeah, I think we've got to go go and win these two tests. I mean, I, I guess throwing it back to you, I mean, I, I, think, I still think in my head New Zealand is possibly not, you know, I think quite clearly we're not a top three side anymore in test cricket. We've we've slipped down the picking order, but I still think we're in that four or five range. I mean, is that? Do you think that's a realistic expectation? Yeah, look, I guess that you know all of the kind of things that you talk about leading into this series come into it. Sri Lanka are pretty much straight off the plane and into the Test match. They've played one warm up game against the um, look. I guess the kind of best of the rest because there's a, there was a first class round of matches going on across. Um, New Zealand this week, so um, it's not even as if there were, you know, the, the sort of uh, the next best team available. It was very much a case of, um, yeah, the guys that weren't playing in their, you know, provincial sides against uh, Sri Lanka, who went and had a, you know, a little bit of a one-day innings. Really, I think, you know, racked up two hundred and seventy out of, you know, fifty or so overs, um, got three or four batsmen a, a reasonable hit 
Um, and then, yeah, look at kind of um, what looked like no more than middle practice, you know, no, no bowler bowling more than six or seven overs in the, um, in the response to that New Zealand's uh, 11s um, reply. So I, I think you've got to fancy the fact that it's going to be tough for that Sri Lankan batting lineup to combat the seam attack that you have, notwithstanding, obviously, missing um, Trent Bolt, missing Carl Jamison. But I, I would think that Matt Henry and Blair Tickner and Wagner and Saudi will be licking their lips, um, an opportunity to, to bowl at those guys pretty much fresh off the plane down at um, down at Hagley, I think, the first uh, test match. Yep. Um, and, and look, I guess I'll kind of throw it back to you and just say, do you see anything different in terms of the balance of that side from from the base? And typically when you win a test match, you uh, don't expect too many changes unless there's uh, workload issues, which I don't think there are, or there's injuries in the, in the squad. Well, uh, yeah, I do think that balance is going to be interesting because like you say, normally th- that certainly the New Zealand selectors have shown a... Uh, shown a liking to when they win a test or when you know something's when things are going well, they don't tend to make too many changes. And I actually thought, in many ways, that the side that we picked was a little bit negative in that last test, in that we had Michael Bracewell batting at eight and essentially being a frontline bowler. Uh, he's he's at times looked like he could fill that role, and at times looked like he was someone that you know could could be a part-timer that teams look to go after. And certainly in that uh, last innings, at least England basically said that they were, well, they didn't say it, but uh, they showed it with their actions by, you know, attacking him and, and making it very difficult for, for him to hold up an end, which is what we sort of needed him to do while the seamers were going. But personally, I would like us to actually say, this is a test series we think we're going to win. This is a test series we think we're going to go well in. And we, we should be playing... Six or well, five batters, Tom Blundell, all-rounder, which in this case is going to be uh, Michael Bracewell because he's our spin option, and and, uh, and then pick the four-seamers. I think we should be looking to, to bowl well, bowl, bowl our four-seamers, have Bracewell as that extra option, but realistically back our batters to actually do the job. And, you know, that's when we've been at our best. That's when we've had you know, the most success. I, I don't, I just don't think we need to, if, if we go into a, the game with a, with uh, three seamers and, and Bracewell, I think we're going to find it much more challenging. If we get rolled by Sri Lanka's bowling attack, then I think that's on us. That's not on, uh, that's not really on the team selection. It's not on uh, the way that we should be playing our cricket. So yeah, I, I would very much like us to, to try and just back our bowlers to take 20 wickets. It, it does mean that Will Young and Henry Nichols, I guess, are fighting probably for, for that spot in at in it four. I think they'll probably go with Nichols in that case. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think there's, there's, there's certainly a lot of calls for, for change in New Zealand cricket. And um, I think you had a question really to me off here around Gavin Larson and, and his um, decision to go to, to Warwickshire at the end of the season. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Do you do you think that it's sort of time for New Zealand to, to start thinking about what we need to do going forward? I mean, a rebuild, I, I, I suppose the term rebuild is, I just don't personally think that it's it applies so much in, in international sport. It applies in your club 
club uh, cricket and club uh, certainly in, in club leagues where you, you know you look at the NRL or the NBA or whatever where you're actually trying to build a side for the next few years I think at international level you just pick your best side at all times or am I am I just dreaming here yeah look it, it, it's a difficult question because I think when you use that kind of word you've got to take some deliberate actions to ultimately pick players that you think are going to grow into the future of an international cricket side so my, my question is really more with that Gavin Larson piece was was more around the structure of New Zealand cricket and I guess the um, prestige is the wrong word, but certainly the opportunities may be afforded to the coaching staff. How do you keep players in your setup? You've got you know, a situation where Brendan McCullum is coaching England. Stephen Fleming is off coaching in franchise cricket. Jeetan Patel is the spin coach for England. Daniel Vittori is an assistant coach in the Australian setup. And now you've got, you know, Gavin Larson going over and taking, I think, Paul Farbrace's job as director of cricket or performance at Warwickshire, one of England's bigger counties. Um, and, and I guess to an extent, Lippy, for you to be a little bit dispassionate here that, you know, your, you know, one of your mates and former club mates, Gary Stead, is, you know, in charge of the, the, the New Zealand side at the moment. But what does that mean in terms of, I guess, that coaching depth and, keeping players of uh, and coaches and administrators of the ilk of some of the guys that we've talked about in and around the game to know what's best in terms of that next phase for, for New Zealand cricket. So that's the angle that I, I'm coming at. I, I don't think at the moment you've actually got that big an issue with the 15 or so elite players that you've got in and around that test lineup. Yes, a couple of question marks around, you know, Henry Nichols or um, Will Young. Yes, maybe some question marks around who's the you know, who's the preeminent seamer that's going to take over from, from Trent Bolt. But you've got enough, got enough depth at that level, I think, to, to continue as a powerful enough side in international cricket over the next couple of little phases with a, a white ball World Cup. Um, and obviously then the, the new phase of the Test Championship after the final this summer at the Oval. So, um, yeah, it, it is really more about that structural piece for me as to whether or not there's some alarm bells ringing from, from your perspective. I don't know about alarm bells, but I, I do think it's a, a very valid point. And, and I, I mean, I, I'm sure that, I mean, I'd be lying if I said that I, I haven't been watching what McCallum's been doing uh, in, in England and, you know, been incredibly jealous, I, I suppose, that, that here's Brendan McCallum, someone that has obviously already had a big impact on, on New Zealand cricket and he's over there and, uh, and you know, helping another nation. And I, I guess we've let him go. I don't, I don't know if there really was an opportunity to keep him around. I don't really feel like it. I don't, I don't feel that uh, that was ever really on the cards. I know the way uh, that, you know, he's, his deal is structured. He's obviously just coaching the test side, but I think what it's opened up, you know, all of this, you know, Gavin Larson, I guess, just firstly, I, I think there's, as I said, there's definitely a hunger from a lot of fans at the moment for some turnover at New Zealand cricket, a lot of players and staff that have been there for a long time, at least, I guess, in professional sporting terms, you know, three or four or five years. Larson's been there seven and a half years. I think, you know, that's quite a long time in, in professional sport. And, you know, in, in a way, I tend to agree it's probably a really good time for, for Gavin to step away. 
but but I think it's also really important to acknowledge that like the time he's been there has been incredibly successful for New Zealand cricket, arguably at the best time that we've ever had. So, you know, and like I think about some of the selections that they've made and I think in the, for the most part, they've been spot on, you know, the choice to play the four seamers in the World Test Championship final. I think in the, tw- I think back to the 2019 ODI, ODI World Cup, they stuck with Matt Henry over Tim Southey, which was, you know, a controversial-ish decision at the time. And, uh, you know, that certainly came good in, in what he was able to do for us in the semi-final. But I, I do think it is a fascinating, it's going to be really fascinating what New Zealand does when Gary's contract runs out at the end of the, you know, the 2023 World Cup. Will they split the role? Will they search, go off, offshore? Will they try and lure one of those guys back? A Vittoria, a Fleming, you know, and they're obviously not going to get Brendan now, but, you know, I, I think they have been, they've been trying to bring some of the domestic coaches into the New Zealand setup and get them a bit of a taste. You've seen Doug Watson was brought into the setup for the, for the recent uh, test series against England, but, you know, he's off coaching Scotland. Uh, we had, uh, you know, Peter Fulton, Fulton, who's been in the, in the setup before. There's, there's a few coaches around, but I, I don't, I don't know that, you know, there's that, I, I guess, premier name that we might all be, hoping for in terms of uh you know what's going to happen and i do think it, it it probably is time to start thinking about whether it would work a lot better for new zealand cricket to have a red ball coach and a white ball coach i mean teams are, are going down that path you you look at the way that you know even just our premier players are starting to look down that path in terms of what they're choosing you mentioned bolt you know yeah de Gronholm, Guptill, you know, some of those guys were coming to the end of their time. But yeah, I, I think there is a, a lot to be said that at the end of that cricket, uh, at that ODI World Cup, it's time. And I obviously hope that they're doing a lot of that thinking now, that it's time that I guess you, it's probably time to turn over a new leaf and actually think about what we do want in the next five years. And yeah, it's going to be fascinating. And I hope it's I hope there is a lot of forward thinking going into that. I, I think actually probably people are wishing that this run that we've having now had happened, you know, at that time. It, it almost feels like people are kind of just hanging on to that World Cup now in, in some ways. But yeah, I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it should go without saying that this has been an incredibly successful time and, and recognize what someone like Gavin Larson has, has given to New Zealand cricket. Absolutely. Let's move on and finish up the podcast talking about the Women's Premier League. So I don't know what the decision around not calling it the WIPL. I I, I don't know whether there was an issue there with an acronym or something like that, but it certainly started with a little bit of a hiss and a roar, the Mumbai Indians women's team. Um, And I watched that opening game and Hayley Matthews, Nat Siverbrunt, Harman Prick Core, who was player of the match, and Amelia Kerr putting the icing on the cake, really, with 45 off 24 balls, was a, mm. a fantastic batting performance. The coverage felt exactly like the IPL. You got the noise in the ground. Um, I, I guess, look, just a shame that Gujarat um, collapsed in a heap, 64 all out. But then we've seen, um, yeah, a couple of high-scoring games as well. Um scores over 200 already in the tournament times two um, has been fantastic. And 
look, this has just got to be a fantastic, fantastic platform for the women's game, right? Um, take the money out of it. This is just creating an amazing platform. Um, and we've already seen some amazing cricket in these four games so far. Oh, I mean, yeah, we've said it before with the, the men's IPL. Like, this is just going to be amazing for, for women's cricket in India. I, like, the depth that they're going to be able to build now. And, and they already felt like a, a side that was was on the rise. And, and, I mean, you see it with some of their young stars. I mean, you mentioned the, the high-scoring games. And, you know, I was watching the the, uh, the DC uh, RCB game. And, you know, Meg Lanning, and Meg Lanning, obviously an experienced campaigner, smashing it to all parts. But at the other end, you've got Shafali Verma. Just, I mean, she is such a talent. And, yeah, to, to I guess... You know, we talk about raising the profile of, of women's cricket. I mean, this you would think that this is going to to be huge. I mean, obviously, there's been the BBL in in, um, in uh, the Oceania region, and that's been really good for the game. You would think a lot of Kiwis have been able to go over there, get get some experience playing at at that level. But you know, uh, the the advantage that India has to to put these tournaments together, and and full credit to them because you know I don't think that these Tournaments have been able to get the coverage as much as the BBL have tried, as much as the, uh, as much as even the Super Smash have tried to to raise the profile of women's cricket here. I, I don't think that there's any doubt that this WPL is, is going to raise it even further. And look, if they can provide the money that they're going that that has already been on offer to start with, yeah, you would think that it's just going to raise the game and build up the quality and. Like you say, if if it can be presented as you know, abs, absolutely equal to the IPL, the fans in that environment and the fans who love those teams are going to be just as passionate about supporting the their women's side as well. So, yeah, I, I think it's going to be great for the game. Absolutely, and look, I guess as well as the cricket, a couple of talking points from the tournament in terms of rule changes i do just want to shout out i felt so sorry for beth mooney limping off injured in that first game she'd kept wicket in the first innings obviously pretty hot and steamy atmosphere and then yeah looks to have pulled a a hammy i think which you know typically is going to rule you out of a tournament of that length so uh look fingers crossed it wasn't as bad as it looked on on the footage for her because she'd certainly liked the tournament up at the top of the order for for gujarat but you definitely wanted to talk about this reviewing of wides and no balls. And I don't know, are we going to be both in the yay camp or both in the nay camp here? Or one of each, maybe. I don't know. I think it's sort of a waste of time, to be quite honest with you. Like, I, I know it's already been done. Yeah, so for anyone who's, who's listening and, and doesn't really know, so the, the WPL and IPL are, are going to trial. They already have trialed. It's already been used. I think uh, Jemima Rodriguez... Uh, I think she was uh, has already reviewed a, a no-ball decision. So you can review now in the same way that you can review an, an LBW decision. You can review a no-ball on height, and you can review a wide, you know, league side, offside. And so uh, I think maybe was it Harman Preet that reviewed successfully, reviewed a wide, and, and Rodriguez didn't or unsuccessfully reviewed a, a no-ball that was dipping. But I, I just... You know, I think there has to be some sort of not variant variance isn't the right word, but not not and not even human error, but like 
there has to be some judgment for these umpires out there, particularly a wide. And I, I don't really know how, because a wide is, I know there are wide lines, but obviously that depends on where people are standing. It depends on a whole bunch of different things. And I mean, I haven't read the rule book, so this is probably going to be wrong as well. But doesn't it also depend on whether they think someone could play a, a cricket shot to, to the delivery as well? So I don't think that you're going to get any of that same sort of judgment that I think an umpire has has by going through this. And it just feels like more wasted time. And I don't know, it, it, it's not something that, that I enjoy going up to, let's go and review a wide, but you may feel completely different given that we just talked about a test match where the ball before the most important wicket was potentially a wide on review. So yeah, where do you stand on all this? Yeah, and look, I guess that's where I, uh, you've got to challenge your your thinking a little bit. I think if you can set an arbitrary um, limit for, um, so particularly for waist high no balls, um, you could get relatively scientific about that, right? So you could, um, I don't know, take the World Health Organization's average height <laughs> of a man or woman. Um, and say that their waist will be therefore at 81 centimeters or whatever the the, the statistic would be, and use Hawkeye. Feels a bit short. Well, maybe a bit short, but use Hawkeye, <laughs> and and essentially that dictates you know uh, waist high. And then the rule probably slightly changes, and you know a no ball is any ball that is over um, whatever that you know whatever that amount of centimeters is. When it comes to um, when it comes to wides, then. I think your point around the game situation, what's the batter trying to do? You know, has the ball just cut the wide line? D- did the bowler follow the bat- uh, the batter um, in order to try and cramp them up or saw their feet move? There's so much subjectivity around that decision that I think it's really, really difficult to legislate for that. And I, I would imagine you're not going to see too many of those overturned probably with the exception from a wide perspective, if the ball has just clipped a thigh pad or mm. um, that, you know, down the leg side. So, you know, I don't know whether they use Snicko, for example, or Hotspot, and they go, well, actually, that's clipped the pad or clipped the trouser. Um, yeah. it, it therefore can't be, uh, can't be a wide. But I wouldn't have thought you'll get too many wide calls being, uh, being overturned. Uh, the height one's an interesting one. Um, so the height of a wide, again, you could probably say, well, you know, the average human being is 1.7 metres tall and a bat is, I don't even know, 80 centimetres or whatever. <laughs> if you add that together and the ball's over 250 centimetres high, it's a wide because they can't possibly reach it unless they have a step ladder. So, you know, th- there's a couple of variables in there. I definitely think for the height no ball, it's, I think it would be a brilliant thing to introduce for the simple reason that how many times have we seen those no balls reviewed for height and it takes so bloody long and they look at so many replays when actually they can just make that a binary decision and say we are going to make the rule at the crease at the popping crease this height is a no ball um, and we'll Mm -hmm. use hawkeye to um to do that and we'll give a margin of error of five centimeters either way um and, and make that uh you know make that the umpire's call on that so I definitely think they could do do that. I, I think the wides, the proof will be in the pudding, but I can't see too many of them being uh, being overturned throughout the course of the tournament. Yeah, yeah. Look, yeah, um, 
Yeah, I, I actually think with the the height one, I don't know why they don't just do it like, if they're going to do it like you said, I don't know why they don't just do it in the same way that they do front foot no balls now where it's just an automatic. I don't I don't see why any of that needs to be reviewed. It should just be done in that way. In and, yeah. yeah, a bleep in the air because it doesn't stop anything. So I think that would be a much better way to deal with it than than having to go through reviews. While we're on women's cricket, I just did want to give a, a quick shout out before we end the pod for for the Wellington Blaze winning the the uh, the Halliburton Johnston. Actually, been quite a while since they've won that tournament. As strange as that sounds, because they've been so dominant, it feels in in women's cricket lately here in New Zealand. But yeah, Maddie Green hundred set them up a, a really good total, and then Lee Kasparik turning things, uh, you know, turning in a, a tremendous performance. That, like she seems to do every single game, and we've talked about it many times. Still, still not not really wanted in that White Ferns setup, but another wonderful effort from her and, and the Blaze picking up a trophy. And it actually also saw the the final game here in New Zealand for for Amy Satterthwaite, who's uh, you know look, I, lot lots and lots of people have said many tremendous things about her career. And yeah, again, just want to shout out. She's been an incredible servant for for New Zealand cricket. All, all the uh, the way that her international career ended is is not the way that any of us kind of saw it, saw it ending. But uh, yeah, look, she's she's just had a fantastic career, and it sounds like she's you know very interested and invested in uh, the next step for her and, and potentially coaching and and giving back to to women's cricket in, in Canterbury and and then possibly in, in New Zealand. So yeah, let's hope we hear a lot more from her in, in the game here in, in New Zealand. Brilliant. Well, Lippy, hopefully we're back to a full top order compliment um, next week. We've been a little light on batting this evening um, in danger of, uh, yeah, not being able to continue if we'd have lost a wicket during this 30 minutes or so. <laughs> so, yeah, um, a speedy get well to Baldy and hopefully Raj is back with us for this week in cricket. And, of course, a continuation of the cricketing uh, Hall of Fame, which we know is... Uh, is uh, long, long overdue in your podcast feeds over the course of the next couple of weeks. But for now, it is good night and God bless from us all here in Auckland. We'll see you on the Top Order podcast next week. See you later.